It's time for the morning brief. We're joined this morning by Tim Hudak, former leader of the Ontario Conservatives, now with the Ontario Real Estate Association. Good morning, sir. Good morning, John Moore. So I was going over the new plan, which apparently goes to cabinet uh, this week, provincially, about uh, how we're going to retail beer, wine, ready-to-drink cocktails, all that kind of stuff. And it's a go, apparently. I'm excited about this, John Morris. It's a great way to start the day. I, I might try to get back to the Ontario legislature just so I could vote for this. Uh, it's been a frustration of mine, John, that I've got a view during my time in politics and now you know on the sidelines watching closely that the consumer always wins. The most powerful force in politics is public opinion and consumers' demands. And that has been true pretty well in every case, with the exception, confoundingly, of beverage alcohol. I mean, prohibition ended in what, 1927? And the chains still, you know, bind us in Ontario in a way that has always puzzled me. So I'm happy to see finally we're going to start breaking some of those chains and allowing more access to beverage alcohol across the board. So lots of elements I like about this. Number one, um, there'll be a universal license for corner stores, grocery stores, and, and uh, gas stations. They can sell all three, beer, wine, uh, as well as uh, what they call ready-to-drink beverage alcohol. So that's like, you know, Caesar uh, in a can, the Jack Daniels hard lemonade. I'm glad to see that's happening, number one. And number two, it's going to um, uh, have uh, the license across different types of, of convenience stores, not just the 450 selected by the previous win government. Third, you can only buy a two-four at the beer stores. If you bought it somewhere else, you'd have to pay for sixes or twelves. That has changed. And number four, there's going to be a shelf space uh, spot set aside for uh, domestic craft production. I think this is excellent all around. Two big changes that happened here. I always knew when I was leader, I looked at this idea as well and had talked about this and said I would do it as premier. It was a real motivator, particularly for young males. But what's happened most recently, John, in polling, women have moved in a big way to wanting to see greater access, largely out of convenience, saving that precious commodity of time. Happy to see free at last, John, after almost 100 years, I can actually act like we're in the 21st century and buy beverage alcohol more conveniently. Well, an ex-Quebecers always giggle anyway. I mean, I've been here for 20 years, and I can't believe we still talk about this like we're talking about how to ship nuclear radiation. <laughs> it's so true, right? And it's sad. I mean, we got to wait till you and I till uh, till 2026. Ironically, 99 years since prohibition ended will be that particular date. So we'll celebrate like it's 1999, I guess. But finally, finally, some progress. Good for the Ford government. What do you make of this business? A Hamilton school board is telling its trustees to limit their media interviews. And effectively, you know, they can talk about a few things vaguely, but they shouldn't really be doing media and they shouldn't ever say how they're planning on voting. When did school board politics become that compelling that you need to clamp down on your trustees? <laughs> and it really is the sort of the infantilization of trustees and the, the greater control that the school board bureaucrats will will have over them. Yeah, when I when I saw the article say that Joseph sent me, I was heavily motivated. Number one, to go back to the legislature to vote to free my rye after 99 years. And number two, I want to buy property in Hamilton so I can vote against these trustees. I've got them marked down, John. The chair... 
Mary Felix Miller and the former chair Don Danko that are telling trustees that they have to clam up. They can't talk publicly about the local school or what they want to do in terms of specialty schools or new subjects. It's ridiculous. What, what they're doing here, I mean, I've lived in both worlds, right? So they're taking some principles that would exist in a not-for-profit or corporate board where you make a decision and then you stick to it as a board of directors and where you don't go outside of the board and, and run that down. Like, I get those principles, but that's in a different world. This is an entirely different universe altogether. You're elected to fight for your constituents, for the, the kids in, in your in your ward to improve the quality of education. There has to be a, a healthy tension and debate on issues that are critically important to families and also very important, John, to the neighborhoods, what happens at school after hours and the programs it provides. This is uh, absolutely ridiculous. I did, I'll tell you this. I ratted them out to the education minister. I'm sure Stephen Lecce saw this already. First order business. I sent this his way. They popped their head up. you got to slam this down. This proves once more the school boards are the worst form of government yeah. and they found a way to make it even worse yeah you know what dismantle them all and merge all of the schools as well i'm just at, at the very least as part of the housing plan that was unveiled yesterday for building of new schools there was this um, injunction to try to sometimes build catholic and uh, non-confessional schools in the same complexes so we could save some money but listen let's keep moving uh fergus the speaker uh apologizing again and again and again yesterday before a common committee having made a video which was partisan I mean he was uh, talking he was reminiscing about his liberal youth and uh, John Fraser his mentor I just think maybe it's not the end of the world but it's become controversial it's not supposed to be controversial so maybe somebody else can sit on the throne and incredibly boneheaded too like I, that's that's basics right when you raise your hand to become the Speaker of the House of Commons or the Ontario Legislature, you know what it's all about. You you put on the robes and you shed your partisan uniform. You're there to call it down the middle. You need to earn the trust of all members, whether it's a minority or a majority government. I, I had the, the pleasure of serving a number of speakers. I think Ted Arnott, the current Speaker of the Ontario Legislature, has done a great job of that, commands respect. Dave Levac, who is a Liberal member for Brantford, you know, similarly did a really good job as, as the Speaker because we, we trusted his judgment. We knew he was not going to be partisan, that had an honor to the members and to the history of the Ontario legislature. You know, one thing that's interesting about speakers is that the premier, the prime minister's candidate, rarely ever wins. And it's one of the few times, maybe the only time, John, where there's a secret ballot that takes place. You mark your ballot, you put it in a box, nobody knows who you voted for. And what happens typically is that members of the government who may not be in the in the premier's favor or want to cast their independent vote will vote for the rebel candidate. And the opposition members will often vote for a rebel from the government because they know that they will call it down the middle. Chris Stockwell was an example of that. He was a notorious rule breaker in opposition and was a hell of a speaker because he knew how to break every rule. Let me get to the point here. So with, with Fergus, he must have some other extraordinary ability to have faith. Otherwise, uh, this is broken. I, I don't think that it is uh, an absolute call because of this mistake if he's been good in other areas and nonpartisan. But, man, when you see liberals in that committee praising the speaker, what a great job he does, that tells me they like him too much. You need a replacement who's going to be neutral and call it as it is. This sounds like a, uh, a treatise from the Simone de Beauvoir Institute. But apparently a researcher at Waterloo has determined that Alexa, the personal helper, is actually sexist. And the whole reason is because it acts as a 
as a personal assistant or a secretary or domestic servant, which is usually a woman's job. It has a woman's voice, and quite a few of the interactions people will have with Alexa can be on the sort of, hey, secretary, go get my cleaning level. Yeah. Isn't this sexist in itself, though? I mean, we use Alexa a lot for getting information on any and all topics. It's a regular conversation our girls have with uh, Alexa uh, in the morning, checking the weather or playing music. That's somehow a feminized task. I, I think the premise in itself, John, is sexist. And number two, I think this Dr. Fan has too much time on his hands to be analyzing all the answers from Alexa and trying to get at the, the core code. I, I reject this survey. Uh, absolutely. I think it is a false study. I think it is a false premise. Uh, and uh, number two, just before the show, I did ask Alexa, John, I said, Alexa, are you sexist? She gave me a clear no. Okay. Well, then, the, the, the rule is in. We're going to put this question to Carmi Levy on Tech Tuesday. He's going to be here at six, uh, 6.50. But thanks a lot. Good to have you, sir. Have a great day.